House of Rugby Ireland, here on Joe, together with Guinness. Game changed. Hello and welcome along to House of Rugby, here on Joe, together with Guinness. I'm Emer Considine and I'm joined with E Madigan and today we are delighted to mention all the way from Brisbane, Australia, that Dan Leo, former Simone International, is joining us today. Dan, you're very welcome to the show. What time is it there in Brisbane tonight? Jeez, uh, good question. Um, not not too sure. I think it's somewhere between uh, three and four o'clock in the morning here now. So uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, now used to these kind of kind of kind of nights and mornings. I've got got two young kids, so uh, yep, uh, life is is pretty normal. Great, great to be here. It's great to have you on the show, and uh, hopefully spread the word on the, the the fantastic documentary you put together that is Oceans Apart, which is available to watch on Amazon Prime and. Where else can you watch it, actually, Dan? Anyone else who doesn't have Prime? Um, actually, it's um, only on Amazon Prime in the UK and okay. the US uh, at the moment. Um, it's available internationally on uh, through Vimeo. Um, we're hoping, um, and if, if any broadcasters are watching this and uh, listening in, uh, to, to get uh, internationally released over the next uh, couple of weeks. So, yeah, the uh, pickup's been amazing, though, in those uh, zones. And, uh, yeah, if you, if you do want to see it before it's uh, available in your, uh, in your, in your territory, uh, please do look it up on uh, Vimeo. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of an eye-opener, but it's uh, yeah, gone, gone, really, gone down really well so far. It absolutely has. I think I was one of those who signed up for Amazon Prime to try and watch it, and I ended up having to pay for it on Vimeo anyway. But now I have Amazon Prime, so, so that's a, a bonus, an extra bonus. But I suppose we'll, we'll get straight into it about, I suppose, your history and, and where you came from before we get into the, into the movie. But um, you grew up in New Zealand with Samoan heritage. So tell us all about a bit about your background first. Yeah, um, most, uh, or not most, but a lot of us uh, Samoans have uh, got that sort of um, that New Zealand or Australian uh, heritage as well, uh, because um, uh, sort of being a, a second generation Samoan, uh, my dad moved to to New Zealand in the in the eighties for economic reasons. Um, you know, you can imagine in a small island, there's not many uh, uh, job opportunities in uh, New Zealand and Australia being our, our largest, closest neighbours. Um, uh, particularly in the 70s and 80s, was, there was a huge influx of Pacific Islanders to uh, New Zealand for um, as they were going through industrialisation, and they just needed um, bodies to, to to fill those uh, those factory jobs, those uh, low skilled labour jobs. So uh, yeah, my, my parents uh, were, were part of that migration across. Um, and again, sort of um, you know the the, the, the rugby. Um, Migration now that we see through the world is uh, is probably an extension of, of that. You know, we see ourselves as uh, doing something similar that our parents uh, did for us, and trying to move abroad and uh, look for these fin- financial opportunities to, to better our families. So, yeah, I was lucky enough to um, come through the um, schooling system in, in, in New Zealand. I uh, went to Auckland Grammar uh, School with um, you know guys like uh, Isa Nathewa and. Uh, uh, ben Atinger and some 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 guys, you know, some some re- really big uh, names in, in the sport. I think that the school pro- has produced the most uh, All Blacks, um, over fifty All Blacks. So it's a, it's a you know esteemed in uh, heritage, and uh, there's a very proud tradition there. Um, ended up going over to Australia again. My parents moved for for job reasons to to Australia, and um, and I followed them at uh, the, the age of eighteen and went through the uh, the Queens and Reds Academy. Um, Played uh, Samoa came and played against Australia in 2005. Um, uh, had an injury and gave me a call up. Um, Michael Jones, who was a, an, all, an All Black legend, was the coach for Samoa at the time, and uh, gave me a call. 
And yeah, basically, um, yeah, when you when you get a phone call from one of your your boyhood heroes, you, you know, you, you you don't say no. And um, although it meant that I couldn't stay in Australia uh, to play, um, you know, the, the eligibility laws mean that uh, if you um, if you want to play for one of the super teams there, you have to be eligible for the Wallabies. Um, you know, it was uh, an opportunity to represent my my my, my dad's family, you know, my family and, and my heritage and my and um, you know and Samoa. And it was to uh, yeah, it was uh, the rest sort of stemmed from there. Came over here and had a, a career in uh, Europe. Um, was over here for 15 years and have just just returned to Brisbane. So, yeah, um, yeah, good times, good times. So I had really enjoyed my career. Um, unfortunately, my international career was cut a bit short. You know, before I probably would have uh, liked it to have been, but um, you know, I was lucky to get 39 caps uh, for Samoa, which is uh, um, you know pretty pretty good achievement considering we only get about uh, three or four games a year. <laughs> <laughs> It absolutely is. And I suppose you finished up your rugby career prematurely, I suppose, in terms of rugby age and for finishing up. And that wasn't entirely by choice. Were you approached or was it just cut short, you know, without without you having an input into that? Um, I think the international stuff uh, took its toll, to be honest. Um, uh, in 2000 14 um you know we were on right on the brink of um a player strike uh even you know we we had the we had our walkthrough um it, it took in them on the on the day of the game and uh we were still uncertain whether we were actually going to turn up for the game at uh uh i think it was a seven seven o'clock kickoff uh that evening was um, this the game in, in twickenham that, that late yeah, um, and I was really at the forefront of that um, uh, those conversations. As uh, the you know, um, I wasn't a, I wasn't a captain or a vice captain of the side at the moment, but I was in the senior players group, and um, basically I was nominated to to front that um, that uh, that dialogue with um, our union, with World Rugby, with the English, with the RFU, the RPA, and every uh, stakeholder that was involved. So it was quite a, um, a, a testing period, especially when you're sort of building up to a big, um, you know, um, an international match, yeah. um, you know, um, yeah. against, you know, in, in front of uh, uh, millions of people. So, um, yeah, so that, 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 that year in particular, um, you know, because it wasn't just, you know, that, that week around that match, it was actually a whole year of, those ongoing conversations, um, trying to get someone rugby to where we, as players, um, thought it deserved to be and where it needed to be, um, was it was a long year. And probably just yeah, um, coming out the back of that, um, it sort of took my focus a bit off the, off the playing side. And you know, um, yeah, on, on the back of that, I, I sort of um, just wanted to step back and play amateur rugby and and sort of rediscover the love for it. So that's what I did. I went back and played um, at um, in the national one uh, competition for Bishop Stalford. And uh, really, that allowed me to, to focus on, um, you know, on the drive that we needed, um, the organisation that we just set up, Pacific Rugby Players Welfare, um, without the, the demands of, um, you know, having to look after rugby as a career uh, as well. So, uh, yeah. Just, Dan, um, on, on that 2014 game, obviously, in the lead up to that, it, and you, you can see this in the documentary, it came out that there was, you know, potential corruption within the, the Simone Rugby Union um, now, in fairness, it, it, it also covers in the documentary that over the last four years they've been audited and their accounts are all above board, which is great to see. But from what happened in 2014 and to what's happening in 2020, what changes do you think have, have come from then to now? 
Uh, well, nobody nobody really wants to play for Samoa anymore, which is which is a real shame, you know. Um, um, and it's the, the hurdles, you know, things are getting harder and harder uh, contractually. contractually. Um, you know, the um, the clubs um, are making things a little bit more difficult now for for players to go back and play for Samoa. You know, there's a lot of pressure on those players not to go back and play for Samoa. But also, when you look at the side, you know, they've slipped from seventh to seventeenth in the rankings. That you know, um, Samoa hasn't played a game and you know uh, um, since the World Cup. Um, and um, you know, um, you know, you hear all these stories of of the corruption and, and the mismanagement. It doesn't make it doesn't um, create a good uh, positive environment for players to want to go back. Um, so again, you know, we um, um, we wanted to address all those things. We we want to build a culture that you know is attracts some of the you know the wonderful players that we provide to the world game. Um, but yeah, um, it's hard to say. You know, I mean, yeah, as, as I say we have to take that on face value. It was the uh, um, the prime minister of our country was actually the one that uh, that told us about you know that that four years of, of clean accounts. Um, but again, you know, there's still um, you know this this problem of high level politicians um, using uh, rugby as political ragdoll, I guess, um, in the Pacific Islands, which uh, needs addressing. So, um, yeah, while there's positive uh, strides being made forward, um, yeah, I guess uh, in terms of definitely for us as Samoa and probably as Tonga as well. Um, Things have gone uh, probably, you know, backwards in terms of our our, um, our on-field performances and uh, that desire for for players to commit to playing for Samoa and, and Tonga. Uh, Fiji, thankfully, are, are going for, seem to be going from strength to strength. Um, I mean, you would have played with guys like uh, Semi Radradra, you know, who have you know they've got some real freaks, but also they've got a massive, um, you know, a, a lot bigger of a, of a player base, um, being you know. Um, a country of 1.2 uh, million people. Um, you know, Tonga's a, a country of 100,000 people. So if three, three of their best players turned down the, the Tongan jersey, that has a massive impact on on, uh, on the Tongan national team. So, uh, yeah, we've got battles. Um, but hopefully, you know, with, um, you know, one of the key, area, you know, things we wanted to do with the documentary was raise the awareness around some of those so that people can get alongside us and, uh, and, and, and support us in, in those yeah, certainly. Like, j- just uh, to give some background to the documentary, um, obviously I played over in Bristol for three years and was lucky enough to play with you know a lot of Samoan internationals while I was there, and I got to see firsthand the difficulties they had with um, pairing up playing for their club and trying to play internationally. Just to explain to people out there, you know, you've guys who, for example, go to play in a World Cup. And if you were playing for Ireland or England in the World Cup, you'd, be, you'd have a minimum of four weeks after the competition ended. The Samoan guys might have had one week. And because they're deemed to be a tier two nation, they'd be straight back in. Um, and then on top of that, then you've issues with guys getting money back for flights, not getting match fees. And, you know, obviously I was coming from the Irish setup, which is, you know, which is brilliant. Everyone's kind of looked after. And I couldn't believe that, you know, team, a team that on our day could beat us has to deal with these kind of external factors. Yeah, there's um, lots of challenges uh, playing, not just for the Pacific Islands, but for, I guess for, for tier two and three uh, nations. I think that, um, you know, that run into tests that you, that you mentioned, uh, you know, only having at times three or four days to come together and try and, um, and, and get your combinations, uh, you know, um, good enough to test some of the, you know, the bigger nations who might have, you know, three or four two-week camps. Um, is you know is very difficult, 
um, and it's not, you know, I mean, the, play, the player pools there, you know, we, we know how, much, how many uh, talented Pacific Island players there are around the world for us to pick. Um, but you could be bringing the best team, you know, of players together. And if you haven't got time and resources to put into, uh, you know, into, into, into developing that, you know, um, and also, you know, the, the team culture, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult to, you know, to get those results. So, um, yeah, that's probably one of the, one of the issues. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many, so many issues affecting Pacific Island rugby, uh, particularly um, due to our lack of uh, resources. And, you know, a, a club like um, Bristol, you know, you would have seen, as you said, you know, you would, you would have seen those players um, struggling to, you know, to, to um, at times, you know, to go away and, and get that uh, cooperation between the club and the, and the, um, and the, and the, and the, and the Pacific Island unions. And that's with Pat Lamb as, as your coach, you know, um, and he's, he's probably a lot more sympathetic to, to a lot of the clubs yeah. and coaches that are out there. Um, you know, God forbid, you, you know, when I was playing, you know, I'd, I'd ever turn back from playing for Samoa injured, um, you know, it's, uh, and that's at the very top, the very pinnacle of the game, you know, you go down a couple of levels where, you know, we're having to draw a lot of our players from the, you know, uh, the second division of France, for instance, it gets uh, even harder and harder to have those conversations to get clubs to release you um, when you know that you're basically going to have to forfeit, uh, you know, your, your month's salary um, while, while you're away. So if it's d- difficult for the players at the top at a Bristol, it's even more so for the, ca- the case for those guys that are below the top divisions. Dan, I think one of the main issues that I noticed in the documentary was the issue with player retention and Islanders not playing with their native islands. And I think it opened up my eyes to both sides of the argument. You know, the reasons why they're not playing because the funding isn't there and that I saw the poverty. And, you know, in the documentary, you see the need for the players to go abroad and to make the big money so that they can send home. So it is the, the players are in a very difficult situation. Yeah, they are, and um, you know, first it's probably worth mentioning. Uh, you know, we um, we we don't um, actually want you know we and uh, those that, that situation can't change where players are our Pacific Island players are able to represent uh, uh, other nations. Um, you know, because they do that very proudly. You know, even in uh, in Ireland, there with uh, you know guys like Bandiaki and Sin and Nolpu in the in the in the women's game uh, represent. You know, they they consider themselves you know um, you know Irish Pacific Islanders. And that's you know that's reflective of um, of of the world you know uh, society today, and unfortunately the um, you know the eligibility laws are one of those areas that we need uh, really need um, you know rugby to look at because um, you know those uh, they don't currently probably reflect um, the reality of um, you know not just uh, society but economic migration which we spoke a bit about off camera you know and the fact that um, you know guys are you know in, in a lot of cases. Um, you know, going across and qualifying for these nations, you know, for you know to look after people and you know um, look after their families, look after their villages, and in extreme examples. And you know, um, we'd like to you know, and that's those are those are um, you know those are actually really um, valuable uh, things that should be you know should be celebrated. It's a great uh, you know, um, it's a great uh, honour for those players to be able to do that. Um, but it's just a shame that it comes at the uh, detriment sometimes, particularly at, you know once they um, don't you know they're no longer wanted by those uh, tier one nations that they can't come back and and give back to the Pacific Islands if they've still got something to, to give. Yeah, just on, on, you know, the how reliant World Rugby is on the uh, Pacific Island players. Like for me personally, coming through the Leinster system, I'd Easton Asiwa there who who mentored me, and and 
was probably the most influential player I've had throughout my career. You know, he, he taught me so much both on the field and off the field. And even in my time in Bristol, like learning off guys like 2CPC. Um, one, of the, one of the things I thought of, like for, in Ireland, um, if you break through and you play professionally for Ireland, your mini rugby team will get rewarded, will get a, a financial reward for the time that they've invested in you, getting it up to that level. Even though it might only be up to the age of 10, 11 or 12, they'll still get rewarded when you get your first international cap. I wonder is something that can be brought in that within a contract, even if it's something as small as 1% of the contract has to go back to the, to the, native, or to, to the country where that player originated from, like to see how far that that money could potentially go in the islands. Like, do you, do you see that as a, as, as a potential route or, or is it something that you've looked at previously? Yeah, no, definitely. I, th- I think um, something like that has been mooted. It actually might even already be in effect. Um, I know that uh, one of the players who came to the premiership um, uh, last season was actually in, a, in that sort of situation where, um, you know, the, 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 the club actually had to pay the Fijian Rugby Union in this instance um, a development fee for the for every year that he'd been, come through the academy before he was twenty. Uh, four, I think. After the age of twenty-four, he um, they, there was no um, if they if they contracted him after the age of twenty-four, they didn't have to um, pay anything. And so, um, yeah, again, what what happened in that situation was uh, the club just I think he was twenty-two and a half at the time. They just said, well, we just we won't contract him until he's twenty-four. So they put it, put it off signing him for for a year and a half. So again, um, you know, it, it takes um, you know clubs, uh, governing bodies. Uh, organization you know um you know um to, to really buy into that sort of system and actually um you know what we want what we need as survivors is people to start doing uh um, things because it's they're the right things to do not because they have to do them not because there's loopholes that they can get around you know uh and, and getting players uh, cheaply from the islands if they do this this and this no it's um you know we need um because of, you know they're, they're not really sometimes within the values of the game um, you know, it's, so I understand rugby is a business these days, and you know clubs and, uh, and, and 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 some of those tier one nations are looking out for them. You know, f- uh, for the you know certain types of their investors and you know, um, you know the, the people that they represent. But um, the problem being is that uh, we don't really have a voice, um, you know, or a strong enough voice as the Pacific Islands to, to make stands, um, you know, where where they're needed. Um, so yeah, but, um, I think a key thing in that, Ian, what, what you suggested is getting the right people around uh, the conversation table. And um, I think you know what we've seen in the last since the game went professional is that actually, um, you know, some of the decisions at that top table probably haven't been to our you know uh, to our benefit of actually you know contributing to our, to our detriment of, of our nations. And we need that to change. We need there to be a bit of a shift. I think um, in terms of the way that, um, you know, um, the whole decision-making process, that whole uh, World Rugby Council, which we address in the film, is, um, you know, is, is being operated because um, the fact that, you know, you've got, um, unless you have influence on that um, at that top of the game around that ex- executive committee and the, um, you know, the, the voting uh, table, um, it's very, very difficult to, you know, to instigate these kind of um you know the, the the policies in the game that would protect the you know um, you know not not just Pacific Islands but those developing those other developing nations. You know, I read the other day that I think it was um, Iran, Laos, and Burkina Faso or something have been um, 
have been um, admitted as full member unions to, to the world Rug- uh, to world rugby, and that was emblazoned all over the website and all all over the news. Uh, you know this this great news, but in, in actual fact, full member unions, you know, they don't even have any votes. So it's all just um, for me. There's a lot of smoke screens, um, you know, a lot of uh, false. Um, promotion from from the governing body to, to, to the point where you know that we make it look like this inclusive game um but actually there's a lot of work for us to do um you know collectively for us to get to that position where we are um, aligned with the values that we that we preach to the world so um yeah sorry i've gone on, gone on for a massive rant there uh you know, don't know if that answers your question no no it does it does yeah i think i i think you've hit the nail on the head there there there, there probably is some sort of system in place but it's from the sounds of things it clubs are bending the rules and trying to work a way around it. It's not implemented as well as it could. It's a good idea, but it's only as good as the implementation of the rules and and making sure that the money is getting sent back and being used appropriately. Exactly, you know, it's the same with the eligibility laws, you know, the the, the changing of the, you know, three years, you know, qualification to five years but what we're seeing you know in a lot of cases is just you know the way that is um, manifesting itself is that um, clubs you know uh, countries are just going and picking guys younger uh, younger from the islands so instead of going and signing them at, at, at uh, 15 um, or 16 you know Rupini Falthal's son now is being you know approached at 11 or 12 and so again it's just um, you know um, in, in, in theory a lot of these, these, um, you know, these, um, these regulations, these, uh, you know, these decisions are um, being made probably with, um, you know, hopefully with best interests at heart. But in, in actual, the practicality of that um, is, is sometimes very different, and that's, you know, why we need the right people around. Um, that got, you know, people that are actually working on the ground. I think there's a, there's, a, there's an issue in at the moment with with rugby and and, and world rugby in particular that they don't embrace independent organisations. Um, whether that be players' bodies or uh, or anyone really consultants, you know, it's, it's uh, there's a bit of a closed shop, um, in, in, in my opinion, that's holding us back. Um, you know, if we want to get the right answers, you know, we, we need to open that process up and get people, um, you know, um, and groups around the table that are, you know, there for the right reasons, not just because they're on uh, on World Rugby's payroll or you know um, under that you know that funding um, from from that governing body. So. Yeah, again, lots of lots of issues, mate. Lots of issues. It seems that you were your hands were tied with World Rugby, and that you know there seemed to be no budge with them. Even watching the documentary and seeing when you suggested about a one vote, one country, he almost laughed in your face. Like just the the disrespect of those tier two and tier three countries, I, I just couldn't get over personally. But so that was one of the challenges that you faced. But what other types of challenges did you face in the process of making the documentary? Oh, geez, yeah. Um, you know, I think it was important making the film that we didn't just uh, try and um, point the finger at um, external uh, organisations like World Rugby, like the Tier 1 Nations. We had to really be willing to have a hard look at ourselves and the cultural, um, you know, norms that probably hold us back as well. Um, so this whole um, respect culture that's pr- predominant, uh, prevalent in the islands is, uh, you know, is, is great. It's, it's, it makes us uh, um, who we are as Pacific Islanders. It makes us great rugby players, great team players. 
You know, um, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been in France where, you know, the French go absolutely blissless because they don't like the fact that, um, you know, the English guys are asking loads of questions at the team meetings. The Islanders will just sit there and, you know, and just, you know, when the coach says jump, you know, they ask how high. And that's <laughs> the way, you know, um, that we're being brought up. But sometimes, you know, that, that can hold us back as well. Um, so we needed to look at that and that entailed me sort of talk, talking to my, my, my father, you know, and, you know, questioning even some, as a, you know, those, some of those highest uh, politicians in our, in our country, um, you know, which was really difficult, um, you know, as a, as a Samoan. And, and I think through making the film, um, you know, um, you know, it was, it was hard to get that balance because I think, you know, knowing that we sort of target it for an international audience, you know, people probably expected me uh, as the presenter to go in there, you know, asking those tough questions. But uh, as a Pacific Islander, we just, you know, it's got to be done respectfully as well. So it's, um, yeah, trying to find that balance was was difficult. Then there was, you know, just the practical challenges of, um, you know, having no budget to, 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 to make this film on. We were, you know, we, we wanted to make sure it was the Pacific Island story told by uh, Pacific Islanders and we didn't want any... Um, um, any uh, corruption of that of that story really, and you know, you know uh, sometimes when you bring on board sponsors and uh, broadcasters before you've um, before you've made a film, they have a lot of um, say in the editing process, and we didn't want that to be the case. Um, we, we you know it was a, you know we wanted the story to to to, to maintain its uh, integrity. Um, so we filmed the whole thing on you know on ten thousand uh, pounds, which included you know two trips for uh, two of us down to the Pacific. Um, so basically, yeah, um, yeah so there were so, so many challenges, so many hurdles, you know, my, you know, even within that process, you know, one of the signatories um, on, on the, on the, mis- on, you know, the millions of, uh, of dollars that went missing uh, from the Samoan Rugby Union was actually a, a relative of mine. Um, one of, you know, um, so just going through that whole process of, uh, with my father of actually him questioning why, you know why it had to <laughs> had to be me, um, you know, fronting this uh, this campaign when it was probably going to bring you know not just uh, our family but the whole village into um, into disrepute. But you know, again, you just you, you go through those questions and you just have to say think to yourself, well, um, I, you know, you know if, if not me, um, who else? You know, do we wait around another thirty years for you know for the for World Rugby and the, and the Tier One nations to to do what's right, and you know, um, or do, are we actually part of that process? And um, that that was the conclusion we came to: was actually no, we, you know, if we if we're ever going to get anywhere with uh, all the issues, we need to educate people and raise the awareness as to what those those issues are. And um, yeah, some of them are, you know, there's, there's, we, we believe there's, there's quick fixes and they're solvable. Others, like the, the cultural issues, you know, that have been uh, ingrained over thousands of years um, are probably a bit more difficult. But uh, yeah, we've got, to, we've got to try and we've got to, we've got to start somewhere. Yeah, it was, it was a fantastic achievement putting together that documentary on, on that budget. I, 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 you'd have no idea it was, you know, run on su- such a shoestring. But another big point that comes up in that uh, documentary, and it's something that I was unaware of as a, as a player, that when a host nation has, uh, like whether it's England or Ireland, has Samoa, Fiji or Tonga playing against them, um, be it in the Aviva or, or Twickenham, the home nation gets 100% of the gate. Um, now, that's fine, providing they're going back and playing in Samoa, Fiji or Tonga, and it's profitable for you guys. Now, it also comes out that it, it's currently not profitable because of ticket sales and, and flights that you'd have to cover for the, the teams travelling over. Um, now, there's two sides to it because with the IRFU, 
the, the men's national team fund a lot of um, what comes below it, be it the men's provincial teams, the women's provincial teams, the women's national teams, and the sevens. And if they were to say, right, well, if we're going to give 10% of the gate to Samoa, Fiji, or Tonga, someone else's, the money's got to come from somewhere else. Um, but one of the, the thoughts that I had was that they have to give the money whether it's 5%, if they're not going to do a return fixture. You know, what kind of conversations have been had around that space? Yeah, it's something that's always, um, I was surprised, you know, and a lot of the reaction um, since we released the film two weeks ago in the, in the UK, um, you know, um, it's it's over, absolutely overwhelming. A, a the um, you know the support we've got, but B the, the fact that you know very very few people knew about that that that, um, the, the, that sharing of funding or you know uh, the, the the lack of sharing, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know that, that happens at the, at the top top of the game. You know to the point where um, you know we know we know it as Samoan players because we're sort of you know. <laughs> When, you know, when you when you when you leave after playing, you know, in front of seventy, eighty thousand people, sometimes, and you've got, you know, you're actually at a loss because, you know, the two hundred and fifty pounds that we did get, you know, um, paid for, for the match is, you know, um, probably gone straight away in your wife's hotel bills. So um, you're actually at a loss playing, you know, in front of a in front of, you know, um, you know, and that's before broadcast rights and all that come into it as, as well. Um, so yeah, it did shock me that um, people didn't. And again, this is why we, we it was so important that we made the film just to raise, lift the lid on some of these uh, these um, these skeletons and uh, in, in world rugby's closet, uh, I suppose. And not just world rugby, you know, they're, they're probably not ultimately, you know, as I spoke to, to Brett Gosper about that in, in the film, uh, the CEO of World Rugby. Um, you know, they they don't see themselves as responsible. They say that's the you know the contractual uh, rights of those individual unions as, as sovereign unions. Um, so yeah, it does does feel a little bit sometimes like the the bucks being passed. And then as you say, you know the unions the unions themselves will say, look, we've got all these overheads. You know, in the RFU's uh, instance, you know that uh, case. You know, with COVID, they've just had to release uh, you know a heck of a lot of uh, employees, which is horrible for those people. Uh, you know, um, you know, to have had to have lost their jobs. So for us then to be, you know, chucking on, as you say, an extra, you know, saying, oh, look, we want, you know, we want a fair split of what, you know, what's being earned as well is is, is tough. Um, I understand that, um, but you know, it's, um, we had we had a player in Samoa when Samoa played England in 2017, who was, um, you know, who wasn't contracted. Um, he, he was living in Samoa and he was he was a farmer and he was probably earning on average. Um, Two, two, two quid a day. Um, that was, you know, um, and actually the, the, the players, the Samoan players, um, um, a lot of them gave, you know, they were, I think they were, we, we managed to, to sort of negotiate, negotiate up from 250 pounds to 400, I think what it is now, 400 pounds to play against the tier one nation. Uh, the Samoan players get in. A lot of players actually donated that match fee to him to, so that he was actually going to be going home with something for, you know, um, you know, for a six week, uh, you know, the six weeks that he'd been away from from home, um, you know, he was going back and then so that, you know, he wouldn't have been out of, out of pocket. And for me, it's just, it's, it's just wrong. The fact that, you know, um, such a disparity uh, does exist. Um, I've actually written to the, all of, all of the home unions to, to ask that they would consider, um, you know, as small as a, a five or ten percent uh, share of the um, of the ticket sales when they when they're hosting a tier two nation. Um, that was 
positively received in, in the first instance, but it's sort of gone cold uh, since since COVID struck. Um, that conversation's gone dead a bit. Um, again, it's um, probably understandable, but hopefully when, once things return back to normal, we can um, get some sensible um, conversations uh, um, started again um, around that. And I'll be, yeah, I mean, one of the key things that um, came out of the, the, the whole journey of making this documentary is, a lot of um, was was you know the fact that you know the, these tier one nations do have so much power, and I think as players and fans, we always like to think of you know uh, world rugby being that overarching um, um, organization that's you know in control of the game and all these decisions. But actually, what I learned was that um, it's actually those, those tier one nations that are pulling all the strings. So we have to lobby them. Um, you know, they they hold all the power. If we're going to get anywhere, it's them that we need to to um, you know to, to to be lobbying and. and that's where the, I guess the public uh, can come on board by writing to to the unions and hopefully putting pressure on them to, you know, to, to do the right thing, not just by um, you know their their own players and, and, and their own um, systems that they're developing, but by those uh, those smaller visiting nations who um, don't have any other way to make any income apart from at the at the gate. Yeah, I think I think a key line in, in the in the documentary is there's no doubt professional rugby now is a business. You know, and we've seen that in, in, in recent years with CVC's money coming into Europe. Um, and, you, you know, it's just the way the game has gone. But at the same time, you can't have, have it both ways. You can't be pushing onto the public, you know, the core values of rugby that World Rugby are pushing all the time. Same, you know, with all the, the home unions. Um, you can't have both sides of that and then not have fairness with the Pacific Island nations. That's what I took from it. I'm not, I'm not sure about you, Emer. But... Yeah, like I just think we just don't know about this inequality. I think that's the one thing that that, I, that struck with me was that it just my eyes got open to a completely different world. And even as a female athlete, I don't think, you know, we get it, that would happen to us. Um, and it, the stories you told, even about busking on the streets of Scotland, going into an international game, playing against Scotland, like that stuff you just don't hear about, that you just think they're you're messing you know, those kind of stories that you just shouldn't happen to an international team. It shouldn't happen to a team full stop, let alone an international team who who's paying for their own dinner. Yeah, and that's the, I mean, the overwhelming response um, from the messages. You know, I've had hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, messages of support since the, the film went live. Um, you know, and, and I guess, you know, 2020 being sort of the, the you know, Hopefully, you know, being going to be remembered as a year where you know those financial um, obligations of, of organisations does um, sort of clash with the, the moral obligations as well. Um, you know, um, um, I've had you know one of the there's been a lot of heartwarming messages from particularly from the public. You know, in one instance it was the you know the the, the international one of the international pitch side doctors that works at took and um, messaged me and said, look, it's uh, he thinks he watched the film, he thinks it's wrong that. Uh, you know that himself as a as a doctor, pitch side doctor, should be getting paid more than the you know some of the players that he's that he's treating, and he's offered to pledge his um, his, his his match earnings uh, to Pacific Rugby players' welfare um, until you know there is a bit more of an even playing field. Um, you know that's one of you know one example of as I said hundreds of messages, and I think the overwhelming um, response from the public is that they do want to see those those values 
um, uh, being up, upheld and, and maintained and that, that they are important to us. It's not just about um, growing the sport as big as, and wide as we can at, at any cost. You know, we do have to, um, you know, abide. You know, there is a way that we do things as the rugby family. And it's actually, you know, those values are equality and, and fairness and, and, and looking after, you know, the little guy. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, hopefully we can um, we can get realigned with those because it is a, a bit of a blemish on the game. And actually, I think if we can be true to those values and, and that's, you know, the, the game will grow uh, organically, um, you know, because not because we're pushing it out and we've got huge marketing campaigns to, you know, but actually because people, other, you know, countries that don't play will look at it and say, that's a great game. Look how they look after people. We want to, you know, we want that. We want to play that game yeah. because it's special. It's not just, you know, we're trying to create a, another football here. It's, you know, it's, um, it means more than that. So, yeah, um, you know, and that's over to us as the public, as the players, um, as myself, you know, um, to you know, to really hold those um, those people in power to to account there and make sure that you know they are, um, you know, developing and taking this game to where we all want it to to go. And did you, as a player, know a lot of this going on? You know, from playing with a lot of Islanders in throughout your career, did you know there was these inequalities going on, or did the documentary highlight it even more? Definitely not an issue when I was in Ireland. Um, even though I was close with Isa, I wouldn't yeah. have known, you know, the difficulties he would have had. I know that Isa um, played when he was very young and then was ruled out for playing for New Zealand off the back of it, which is almost the opposite to what's happening now. You know, you have someone like Charles Pieta who's played for New Zealand but would now like to have the opportunity to play with his brother in Tonga. Um, but it was it was when I was in Bristol that I, I saw firsthand, you know, guys not getting paid for tours, um, guys having to pay for their own flights to go back to Samoa to to, to represent Samoa for camps, um, and it was only then really that I, I actually I felt very passionate about it because I see firsthand, you know, what these are what these guys are going through, how passionate they are to play for their country, and um, through no fault of their own that decision to play for their country is being made extremely difficult. You know, it's, it's you know, they're, they're, they could be putting the, their, their family under massive financial pressure. Um, they could be putting their next contract at risk because they could have a falling out with the, with the head coach. So there really is, like, there's big things at play here. It's not just a, 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 simple, a simple decision to make. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, guys. Um... You know, um, if we want this, you know, and I think, you know, uh, the, the amount of players, you know, we, we put the Pacific Islands provide 30 percent of the of the players now at the World Cups without with three teams that we provide. Um, you know, it's just um, you know, and we want that to, to continue. You know, um, I think it, it's, it's the, the, the you know the incentive um, to invest into into the islands is um, is only going to pay come back. You know, be paid return uh, tenfold, I believe, because you know we do we do need more countries that can. Uh, that can uh, potentially win win the World Cup. I think you know realistically when you when you when you look at the draw every 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 four years, you know that one of probably realistically only, only six, maybe five or six teams can actually win it at, 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 in any year, and we need to to expand that you know to the point where um, you know all, uh, all 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 sixteen or twenty teams uh, you know at a World Cup can have a realistic um, um, potential of, of of winning that, and that's just not the case now. Um, but you know, let's um, you know, I'm positive that with the right um, people behind us, as I said earlier, um, and, and 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 a shift in, in world rugby's mentality where they do get those right people around the table, that, that this situation can change, and that you know, in in, in twenty years' time, 
Um, you know, we're not still just turning up to World Cups and seeing, you know, South Africa, New Zealand, England, and, you know, and, and, and maybe, you know, Ireland or, you know, or, or one other with a, with a chance actually, you know, the Pacific Islands can actually really um, live um, and, and, and realise our potential of, of being semi-finalists, being finalists, you know, why not even uh, winning, winning winning a World Cup? I'd love to see that in my lifetime. Um, but, um, yeah, at the moment, um, with the way the system is, um, it's, it's just not a reality. Well, Dan, I think we could have talked to you all day about this. It was so interesting. <laughs> we could stay here, honestly, all day long, but we don't have it. But um, for any Irish rugby fans that haven't seen the documentary yet, I would absolutely highly recommend it. Myself and Ian both would. And it's a great insight into the Pacific Islands rugby and it's called Oceans Apart and it's available on Vimeo at the moment and hopefully on Amazon Prime very soon in our regions. So before we go, Dan, um, we gave you a little heads up about a few items that we got you to gather um, in your house to take part in our House of Rugby Challenge today. So the three things we asked you to come up with were a piece of rugby memorabilia, a jersey you've swapped and held on to and something non-rugby related. So hopefully there's a good story behind all three of these these treasures. <laughs> we'll start off with the first one. There's, there's, yeah, there's a good story. Uh, the fact that I've only got one of those three because uh, <laughs> just just moved back to Brisbane and the rest, all um, all of my stuff's in shipping at the moment. Um, so uh, yeah, currently just got what I brought over on my suitcase. Um, but one of those um, uh, being, you know, the most important thing, you know, to me, it was um, yeah. Most people, you know, I've seen a few people bring, bring their uh, their first jersey on, or you know, one that was important that they swapped. I've actually got my. Uh, this was the last uh, jersey that I uh, that I got for uh, playing for, for Samoa, and uh, the reason why it's so important to me is for for those reasons um, that we spoke about. It was you know it was um, the game that we're about to strike. Um, it was my last game. You know, I, I, I basically thrown my head through the uh, through the glass at that stage. You know, um, and and basically before you know, very rarely um, do you go into a game knowing um, that it's going to be your last game. But I knew. That, that was going to be my last for the uh, you know the stand that we were making, um, so yeah, I've kept that jersey. I keep it very close to me, um, and yeah, whenever I'm lacking motivation to uh, to push through and uh, you know for this uh, this journey and this cause that I'm fighting for, I, I look at it and uh, you know remind um, it reminds me of the important things um, you know on that on that jersey of what you know what I've, I've basically poured my life into you know this uh, this cause now. So uh, yeah, that's the, the story behind the. Uh, behind that, and uh, yeah, um, probably a bit different than uh, than some of the ones ah, that you brilliant. might have heard uh, on there. But uh, yes, apologise, I haven't got much uh, much else. Though, as I said, I've literally come back to Australia uh, three months ago, um, returned back from the UK with my with my young family. Um, so yeah, um, had to do two weeks of quarantine with them in Sydney. So uh, basically, just loaded up our suitcases with as many toys stuff to get through that uh, quarantine period as we could so uh, you know, I'm a little bit light on the ground in terms of uh, uh, clothing myself uh, and the memorabilia but uh, loving <laughs> life back here in in, uh, in, uh, in Queensland where there's uh, yeah, at least there's no COVID. At least there's sunshine as well and, and you managed to time the documentary around your two weeks quarantine so I'm sure you were doing interviews all all of those two weeks. Yeah, job interviews as well. I've just started working uh, full time with uh, in the special needs sector back here in uh, in Australia, um, looking after a one on one with a kid with autism. So a uh, different different challenge. Um, yeah, this uh, 
the the work that I do with uh, Pacific Rugby Players Welfare is has and, and always you know it's important that it is voluntary. Um, we don't want people thinking that we're doing this for the wrong reasons, particularly in our country where you know a lot of people are uh, involved in rugby for the wrong reasons. So yeah, I'm enjoying life back here. It's um, yeah, it throws up its challenges, but uh, really appreciate you guys having me on here and just um, being able to you know um, talk about some of these these issues, which you know hopefully we can you know we can impact and change. Absolutely. Well, Dan, it has been an absolute pleasure from the two of us to have you on and, and best of luck with the documentary and I hope um, hope loads more people see it. Yeah, thanks a million for coming on, Dan. It was brilliant. There's big support for you guys from uh, all the players here in Ireland. Really appreciate that. Hopefully we'll get uh, Ireland over to the uh, Pacific Islands uh, sometime soon as well, eh? Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, guys. Really appreciate it. Take care. If you haven't already done so, Click subscribe on House of Rugby Ireland to never miss a show. For the Guinness House of Rugby Hall of Fame, this week we asked you on our Twitter and Facebook to tell us your favourite Pacific Islander. Um, Gregor Galway said Nemanji Nandolo, while Len Carmody suggested Brian Lima for his nickname, The Chiropractor, and reminded us he was signed by Munster on a short-term contract but never got to wear the famous red jersey after. Lloyd Warren said, my favourite ever is Junior Paramore. Giving anything less than 100% was never in his mindset and always with a smile. A true Gloucester rugby legend. Congratulations, Lloyd, and welcome to the Guinness House of Rugby Hall of Fame. Ian, we're not going to dwell too much on the game at the weekend, but we must mention the win over Georgia. I suppose some really good Ulster performances, the one positive we can take out of that game. Yeah, certainly. Um thought Billy went really well for the time he was on and uh, Stu McCluskey showed you know what he can do and what he's been doing for the last few years for Ulster so hopefully you know they get goals again this week um, I'm not sure if Billy's fit but you know Stu certainly looked looked really good out there and in the pack I thought Hendy had a good game and and um, so did Rob Herring so you know there was, there was there was still positives to take from that game you know if you look at that first half we played some good rugby, we moved the ball well, we could have scored just before half-time, which could have very much changed the psychology of that second half. Um, but at the same time, there's no getting away. Like That, that second half performance was below the standards that, 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 that they set. But yeah, I suppose, what did you think of it? I suppose, yeah, it's the second half, isn't it? It's the three points and, and that's it in the second half. You know, Against a team like Georgia, where... You know, I know our scrum was struggling in the first half and Keane Healy came on then and rectified that, but still three points. I think they were disappointed. You could see it in their in their demeanour after the game that they were disappointed. It was almost like they'd lost the game and, and their standards are higher than that. I think as an Irish team, as an Irish squad going out against Georgia, fair play to Georgia for how they played and how they stood up to the game and faced the game. But, you know, the Irish lads won't be happy with that and weren't happy with that performance. Um, I think last week we mentioned... You mentioned Stuart McCluskey and I said Shane Daly and both guys got the call up. So our <laughs> predictions have been right so far anyway. So at least we're happy with those ones. I thought Stuart was excellent. Um, really great to see him, him play so well. And, you know, he he was great in attack. You know, he created so many opportunities with both his foot and with his ball in hand and his carrying abilities was really, really good. And I was delighted to see Shane Daly come on and get his first cap. And he's a really strong feature. I thought it was nice he came on for Earlsey as well. You know, I'm sure he's someone he grew up you know, looking up to and, and wanting to be. So really, really proud moment for him. Yeah, I thought I thought Shane looked really sharp, even in you know, the, the few minutes he got. Um, you know, a nice chip up the touchline. It was unlucky it didn't work out. But I think you could see with Ireland at the weekend, they, you know, did have a clear kind of kick strategy as attacking kicks, you know, grubbers, chips. What, what did you think of that? 
Yeah, I think they got criticised last weekend for not kicking so too often. Maybe that was in the back of their minds going into that game, but they probably didn't need to kick as much as they did, you know, against a team like Georgia. You know, get build the phases, keep possession, get some momentum, get some strong carries, and eventually you will spot gaps in their defence. You will open them up, or you'll catch them on wide, or you know they'll they'll give away a penalty after after a few phases. So, I suppose the decision making in that probably could have been better, um, but maybe it was in their minds for the game at the weekend. You know that they kicked too sparingly, and maybe this weekend they kicked too often. And I suppose it's to find that balance and and. I suppose every team is different. Like we against England, you're going to have to kick for territory, and and you know that's the most important thing there. Whereas against Georgia, you know we need the ball in hand, and I think it was our decision making at the weekend that we probably, um, probably lacked a bit of really. Um, I think just looking even on Twitter, there was quite a lot of negative comments. You know, there was they were getting a lot of stick for how they played and the way that they played, and. It's very easy for people sitting at home, us even here sitting here in this chair, chatting about it and chatting about their decisions. And but it's a completely different ball game when you're when you're on the field. And I suppose that's just the nature of being a professional rugby player is that you you have to take the good with the bad. And have you ever experienced any any of the bad negativity? I know the good stuff you don't really mind, but what about the negative ones? Yeah, certainly. I suppose for me. <laughs> Uh, in the earlier years when I was trying to break into the Leinster side um, if there's a nice article written about you you're going to read it you know if there's a uh, nice tweet sent your way you're going to read it because you're going to have a friend saying it to you your dad might say oh did you see that nice article that was written about you and you'll, you'll read it but it's dangerous going down that route because um, if you're going to read the good stuff you're going to end up reading the bad stuff uh, and it was really Anna McNulty that said to me here look unless it's having a really positive effect on you because the table will turn, you know, maybe just cut it out. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I know players who be on the, the supporters' boards after games and reading the most toxic stuff being written, um, people directly sending them messages on Twitter. And, like, the, the reality is if, if those people who are sending those tweets met um, whatever the player is, in person, you'd be guaranteed to be nice as pie and to be complimentary. But because they're behind their phone and they're letting rip and, you know, they're probably trying to get a reaction off their friends in WhatsApp groups or whatever it might be, very nasty stuff is said. And it, it is, a, you know, it's something that's probably crept into the game over the last few years. And, you know, I'm sure you've experienced, you know, it yourself over the, over the last few seasons. Yeah, like, I suppose we're not in the spotlight as much as you guys would be and... um but yeah, you do, you experience it and, and like that you look for it, even though, you know, everyone tells you not to look for the negative comments and everyone tells you not to, to look at, you know, like you said, they're not going to say that stuff to your face. But I suppose when you, with the joy and the good and the bad thing with social media is that you, you get at it, you get, you know, you're tagged in something, which means you automatically get a notification and you're then in a thread of tweets and you're, you're notified every single time someone says something. And I honestly wouldn't have had that many negative comments really only this week, really, around the women's coverage of the game with TG Carr last weekend, and a few articles came out since with World Rugby. And it's just so funny to see different people's takes on it, and not everyone is going to agree with the fact that it was an all-female commentary team. Um, it's just funny, though, and I think I can see the funny side of it, and I can see, look, not everyone's going to be happy with it. They wouldn't be. Some people wouldn't be happy if you told them the sky was blue. You know, some people will argue with everything, um, or go against, or be opposed to everything. So, look, you have to take the good with the bad, and there's plenty of good to take, and. My mother has all those articles, you know, printed out from the papers. She has every single one of them torn torn off in the drawer somewhere. And I suppose they're the good ones that you'll remember. And um, you have to take the good with the bad. Yeah, I, and look, you know, I've 
through you, I'm aware of that reaction, and it's it's really disappointing. You know, we're we're looking to grow the game, um, we're trying to get more female rugby players playing the game or supporting it. Um, I know from watching the TG4 coverage, you know, Anna's far more into it. If you know, if you're on or or um, it's the all female coverage, and I think you see with the you know the soccer in the UK. It's the way the game is going, and we've got to be more open-minded. Even bringing in female referees, you know, there's no reason why they can't be just as good or better than the, than the men. And um, I think people have, have to step back and realise, not be as close-minded, yeah. and this is the way forward. I think it is, and I, you know, even seen there there was a, a touchline judge as, as a female yesterday, and, and Joy Neff refing, Joy Neville refing games, you know, really, really high standard quality international games. And it's just, you know, no one even bats an eyelid anymore. And that's the really good thing is that I think it's yeah. just everyone's so used to it. And they're good at what they do. You know, it's not because they're a male or they're a female. It's because they're genuinely good at what they do. And they deserve to be there. They're not there because they're a male. They're not there because they're female. It's because they're in, they're the best person for the job. And I think that's the most important thing, no matter who they are. Um, but... I suppose around around media stuff and around the protocol, I I learned quite a bit and how to manage it, and especially from like look, looking up to older players. I remember in the twenty seventeen World Cup when it was home, you know, there was a lot of focus on us, and obviously being in Dublin and and being there was a quite a lot of hype around the game and around the the World Cup itself, and a lot of the older players would have like deleted their social media and deleted their Twitter, and just I couldn't understand it really. But you know, from from being in the game a while now, I understand why, and I understand that there's yeah, there's a lot of positive stuff, but like the negative stuff as well. And it's it's hard to focus on. And we would have media protocols in place at the moment where just with international games that we wouldn't, we're not supposed to be on social media, like liking photos. Like obviously we can go on and we can look on it or whatever, but just not interacting on social media, whether it's comments or likes or, um, you know, responding to posts and that we shouldn't be doing that from the day before until the day after. And I suppose it's a way to protect us as players that, let's say so-and-so hasn't got a good game or hasn't played very well, well, you can't have your man on the road saying, well, she was tweeting there last night at 11 o'clock when she should have been asleep. Or, so I suppose it's a protection way for us, but would you have any, would you have any um, you know, stipulations in relation to your social media at the moment? Yeah, I think there's, there's two sides to that. Like, and, you know, there is that aspect, you know, a player who's disappointed after a loss and has a hot-headed reaction about a ref or something like that. You know, the, the, the club or the union doesn't want to, doesn't want that to happen, so they don't want to take it away. And you know, we had this, we had similar bans when I was in 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 Leinster, but Bristol had a very different view to it. Um, same in Bordeaux, and even Ulster now have a different view. We can post right up to games and, and post after games, and they want interaction with the supporters. They want you know guys thanking the supporters for coming, congratulating guys on first caps. You know, and getting that interaction going, f- making the supporters feel like they're more part of the experience the, the whole day. And um, I think waiting a full day after a game, the moment has sometimes yeah. passed. So there is definitely positives to be taken between having, you know, by having these bands, but also there's opportunities there to grow the game and, and, and interact with supporters. Absolutely. Um, I suppose looking forward, we went way off track there, but looking forward to the men's game at the weekend. They still have Scotland to play. Um, it's for a third, fourth, for the playoff, I suppose not the place that they want to be, but look, Scotland are the one that we face at the weekend. And do you think they'll have many changes? Will we go out to win this game or will we go out to just, you know, blood those new players again? Yeah, I, I think they'll pick players who have been playing well. Um, they'll reward the guys who've performed, you know, in the last kind of four or five, six weeks. Um, but 
there will be a big, big focus on winning this game. It's it is an important one. Scotland are a side that have been building over the last few weeks, um, and they'll be they'll they'll find themselves to come. And and you know, I think we saw in the Six Nations last year that they ran Ireland really close, and we were potentially a bit lucky to come away with a win there. So, um, no, I expect that that would be a really good game. But I think I think Andy Farrell will, will pick his his best available. 15 and I 23. That's the thing as well. It's the best available and there's a lot of injuries in the squad yeah. at the moment. There really is. So the best squad available isn't necessarily the best squad we yeah. have in Ireland. Um, I suppose that there's a lot of injuries in the forwards as well and we probably saw that last weekend with you know, the penalties that were given away and the, they really, you know, there was a lot of talk about set piece in the last few games coming up to it and it wasn't really any better last week. So I suppose take little things and maybe the focus might be on set piece next weekend but I would like to see guys rewarded and I think Andy Farrell is doing that he's rewarding the guys that have been playing well both at provinces by selecting them in the first place and bringing them in and like we see Erica Sullivan came into the Irish squad again this week and last week you know being rewarded for for playing well and I, I think that's really good to see that there is an opportunity you know if you're pushing if you're pushing in your club and if you're pushing those players that are starting in training that you finally will get your your opportunity. Yeah, no, it's been great to see Eric getting called up. You know, he's a guy who was playing AAL up to a few seasons ago. Has been one of Ulster's you know, most consistent performers over the last um, two or three seasons. And he's fully deserved of, of that call-up. Uh, I, I think we were all a bit disappointed that he didn't make the 23 last weekend. But I know going into that Irish setup, there's a lot of, lot of detail to learn. And, and um, maybe they didn't, didn't want to do him unjust and... and you don't want to rush a guy in and then him not be at his best and that could be his, his first chance gone. So, um, But no, Derek is definitely a guy who's going to keep knocking on the door and there's, there's no doubt he'll be, he'll be in for his first cap soon. Absolutely, and hopefully he will be. So looking ahead to the weekend, France are in a little bit of a sticky situation in relation to their squad rotation. So the rules that they agreed with with the top 14 means you know players can only play three games. So facing England, that's not an ideal situation for them. No, certainly not, but... I think we saw they rotated a lot against um, Italy at the weekend and the guys who were coming in, some were fantastic, like the likes of Teddy Thomas on the wing. He looked like he was out there playing tag rugby the way he was playing with the Italian defenders. He's just, he's just a phenomenal winger. Anytime you get him the ball, it looks like something's going to happen. Um, but I think regardless of what 23 France put out against England, that's going to be a really, really good game. Um, you know, they've they've had some great matches over the last few years and the French have real confidence about themselves at the moment and they'll be going over there thinking that they can win. Yeah, if you're going to put your money on it, who would you put it on? I still think England at home. I think they've they've just figured out a game plan that's winning rugby for them. Um, and for me, looking at that, a lot has to go wrong for England not to win at the moment. Um, it's just such high percentage rugby. It's not particularly good to watch, but they, they play a very accurate kicking game. They have lots of good ball players. If you look at their back line, you know, it's, it's nearly all centres and out halves between Farrell, Slade, Daly. Even the wingers have previously played at full back or in the centre. You know, so they, they're able to move the ball and they're all app, you know, incredibly good kickers. Um, and then on top of that, you've obviously got a fantastic pack who can play that power game and, and keep them on the front foot. So I think, I think England will edge it, but I think it'll be a close game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, there was lots of, well, there was only two Guinness Pro 14 games at the weekend. Obviously, the Leinster and the Connacht game getting postponed due to COVID cases. Um, but you played last night. Harry, yep. after, how's the body after it? 
Yeah, not too bad, a bit stiff. Uh, we travelled over in the day, so, you know, they're long old days. You're up, up at seven o'clock and you're not back, back home till one or two. Yeah, <laughs> It's only tough if you to work the following day. <laughs> so, no, I'm not, not complaining. We've a few days off now, which is great. So it's been a, a kind of long enough run of games. I think we've been eight in a row um, in the league. Yeah, you have to be so, happy with that. Yeah, it's been great, great start. You know, the, the re- really enjoyable um and it's great to get a run of wins, you know. There's nothing like wins to keep the squad happy, and we feel like we're we're building something special up up, up north. And um, absolutely, it was close last night at some stage. You know, I know you ended up winning by a significant amount, forty-three yeah. fourteen. But at one stage, if I learned anything from the game last night, it was always chase down the conversion because yeah. <laughs> um, hit the post, and then he was offside, a mile offside. In fairness, but like, had he been a meter back. You know, that was a, that was a try. It was 1919 and the yeah, game was completely current. It was one of those moments where I, I thought he'd scored and I was going, how have we let these guys back into the game? And it was through our own mistakes that we'd let them back in. Um, but yeah, I was standing in, in behind the post and the ball was coming in and I shouted, right post. But like it took, took such a bizarre bounce off the post. There, you know, it went right out to the perfect wing. Spot, yeah. And surely enough, he scored it. But... Ironically enough, it was actually our video analyst who spotted it that the winger was offside. And like none of us had known. You yeah. wouldn't have known to check it. So our captain went up and said it to the ref, look, would you mind just making sure he's onside? And then surely enough, they checked it. Yeah. But, you know, at 19 all, it's a very different game as opposed to going up 40 metres, winning a penalty. And then we scored quite quickly after that. And then, you know, the game was put to bed and we were able to pull away. But... Um, no, look, we, we know that we played well for periods of the game. The opening 20 minutes was, was really good and we turned it on for probably the last quarter. But um, I think we're also aware that come the European Cup in, in two weeks' time that we're going to have to string it together for, for 80 minutes to beat the likes of Toulouse and Gloucester in our first two games. Absolutely, not an easy start for you. Um, I turned over the Munster game at halftime. They had the bonus point win. I know you probably didn't see it. You were playing at the exact same time. But again, Munster, another province with eight out of eight Leinster the same, also the same. You know, it's really looking positive for the Irish provinces. Yeah, I think it will make for a very exciting inter- Interpro series at Christmas. Um, you know, we've got five big games coming up between the two European and, and the three Interpro games. So we'll find out, you know, who's who's really eight from eight at, you know, and, and still unbeaten come the new year. Um, but no, look, it was a very good performance from Munster again. It was great to see JJ getting man of the mm. match. Um, you know, he's a quality player and... Um, a guy who'd be looking to really nail down that, that 10 slot going into Europe and, you know, no doubt he's the guy to take them forward. Do you think that, you know, given the Automations Cup, will those internationals be rested quite a bit then for those Interpros? Since we've returned back from COVID, it's been quite a string of games between, you know, Pro 14 finals and, and depending on who you are, you could have had 10, 10 or 11 games at this stage. Yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely going to be a tricky one now for, for the provincial sides who haven't had the internationals for, let's say, six weeks. You're going straight into a European game. If you've got a guy who's been playing well provincially, yeah. obviously you've got international guys coming back. You're going to be picking some of them, but you might necessarily be picking all of them. Yeah. You've got to still have core guys who've, you know, your game plan's evolving week to week. You can't just suddenly bring in 15 new guys into your, your starting team because it's going to end up too disjointed. Um, so you might see guys who've been playing internationally coming off the bench initially in that first game and then as they integrate and get another training week under their belt, I'm sure they'll be in to start, you know, the second European game. And then I think the way you will probably see it over, 
the Interpro series in the three games, you'll probably have one player starting one, subbing one, and maybe getting a week off for the other. But I think all the players in Ireland are, are hungry to be involved in those games and, and you know, want to compete like, you know, the old Irish trials. And that's, that's where you can put your hand up for Irish selection. Absolutely. Well, cheers to everybody for watching and listening today. It has been a pleasure to have Dan Leo on. He was a fantastic guest. Um, cheers to everybody for watching and for listening. Um, big thank you to producer Pat, Paul, Dermot, Ian, Anthony and everyone who helped get together in this show. This has been House of Rugby Ireland here on Joe together with Guinness Slongafel. House of Rugby Ireland here on Joe together with Guinness. Game changed. <laughs>